Thank you, Stu, very much. Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you for your prayers for me this past week. I'm doing much, much better and feeling like my old self again. So thankful for that and looking forward to, been looking forward to renewing our fellowship. I greatly missed being here last week and uh, just a delight to see everyone here and delight to see some new faces as well. Welcome to you. Be sure to let, uh, uh, ask anybody. This is a pretty friendly bunch. If you don't know where anything is, they'll, they'll be able to point you in the right direction. We're very, very glad that you're here. All right. And for those that are with us online, uh, welcome to you as well. Thankful that you can join us via the wonders of the internet. So uh, with that, let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. We're continuing on in our study of the life of David, particularly with the idea of striving to understand the mind of David, this one who is said to be one who is after God's own heart. What makes him tick? We know that David uh, was not a perfect man. So how do you put that man after God's own heart with up against the, the imperfections that we see? The Lord's the one who makes that declaration. So I'm pretty sure he knows what he's saying when he says that about David. So uh, let's, uh, let's uh, find out even some more today but something about what is going on in the mind of David as he goes through the various experiences that the Lord has had sovereignly ordained for him. Psalm 57, if you're able to stand, please do so for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 57 is entitled, To the Choir Master, According to Do Not Destroy. This uh, tune, by the way, Do Not Destroy, is uh, one that is one of the more common ones. It gets used... About half a dozen times, I think, uh, throughout the Psalter. Uh, it's a miktam of David, a particular kind of song. Uh, remember that is, uh, it has to do with a heartfelt cry uh, of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. All right, here we go. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his promise for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O oh, harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O oh Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O oh God, above the heavens. 
Let your glory be over all the earth. God adds His blessing to the reading and hearing of His holy word. Please be seated. So when uh, the Willises and I and several others from around the country gathered for Synod back in Greenville, Tennessee a couple weeks ago, that was an interesting weather week to say the least. Um, tornado warnings. They hadn't had tornado tornadoes there for many, many years. We had tornado warnings. Hurricane force winds. Um, lightning that I can't actually ever remember, except for maybe one other occasion, seeing that much lightning in that short amount of time. It was just pop, 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 pop. It was incredible. And uh, the wind was and the rain, torrential. Um, I got caught in the middle of it, trying to drive back to the house I was staying out in the country, and could not see where I was going. Driving blind uh, at 10 miles an hour, just trying to stay on the road. And the wind was trying to take my car. It was a full-size car, and it was just blowing me around. It was, I was like, Lord, help me get back to the house. Uh, Just wanted to get to safety. Just wanted to get to that shelter. Did you guys get caught out in that? Or were you? Not that bad. Oh. There were also flash floods. Oh, flash floods too. Yeah, there was that. I forgot about that. Um, anyway, praise God. Clearly. I got back to the shelter. Um, ran. I parked outside. And in the 10 steps between the car and getting in the garage, uh, I was soaked. <laughs> Incredible. Anyway, then what do we do? We go and we stand. We stood on the porch and watched the whole thing, right? All swirling around us. Um, what does that have to do with anything? Well, remember back in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 5. David has fled from Saul. He went to the Philistines. He went to the city of Gath, Goliath's hometown. He gets arrested. Uh, probably would have lost his life without some fast thinking on his part, pretend like he's insane, and the king boots him out of the city because he figures he has enough crazy people around him. And so David then flees from there, and he goes to the caves of Adullam, which either he fortified or was a place of safety that others had fortified, but it's about 20 miles inland from Gath in the foothills of the Judean, uh, Judean mountains, and it's just kind of just inside the border of the land of Judah, territory of Judah. And he's there in that cave, and as, as he's there for a while, people start coming to him. And he's got 400, 400 fighting men, and their families are there, and his parents, his brothers, they all come as well. And he makes arrangements while he's there to get his parents to a safe place outside of the bounds of of the land of Judah entirely. Over in the land of Moab, he gets his parents over there after a long uh, journey overland to get them there. And then he returns. Uh, A prophet comes, the prophet Gad comes and uh, ministers to him and to the others that are there as well. As I was thinking about this 
this psalm, Psalm 57, as well as its companion psalm, which we looked at the last time I was with you, Psalm 142. These two psalms were written during this time when David's in the cave. David's in the middle of a storm. He's on the run from Saul. His life is in danger. And everything seems chaotic. In, uh, in terms of, of peace and safety, the lightning is crackling all around him. The thunder's crashing all around him. He can't see where he's going. He's, he could be easily blown off course and very nearly did so by going to Gath in the first place. He should never have done that. He's not sure where he's going. He just wants to get to safety. So he gets to this cave. In Psalm 142, we noted there that David's response during that time, and it seems even though the numbers, you know, 142, that's quite a bit later, obviously, than Psalm 57 as far as the numbering goes. Uh, But that's uh, simply because an editor of the Psalms at some point organized them in that fashion. It doesn't necessarily mean they're written in chronological order. I think we probably all recognize that. Psalm 142 seems like it was the one that was probably written first. And the reason I would say that is because it's less, it's less settled. It's, it's, remember how up and down it was. One moment he's praising the Lord for the Lord's faithfulness and keeping him, and the next moment he's kind of in the depths of despair and talking about all the challenges and difficulties um, as if he hadn't just said that the Lord was going to deliver him. And then he comes back to the Lord delivering, and then he's back down again, and it kind of goes back and forth. He ends up in the right place, but he's wrestling, he's struggling, he's in the middle of that storm. Would this storm never end? I think David is probably going through that kind of emotional roller coaster. I mean, he's got awe and confidence about God, and then, then the next round of wind hits. The next, the next uh, pounding of the lightning, the next roaring of the thunder just outside the door. And even though, yes, he's standing, so to speak, on the porch, watching everything swirl around and feeling somewhat safe, it just when it seems like things are dying down, the wave of fear and doubt comes crashing in on him again. Much like we were in that storm. Now in Psalm 57, it begins, verse 1, with again with a cry for mercy. There was a cry for mercy in Psalm 142 as well, if you recall. If not, you can go back and look at it another time. But here in Psalm 57, verse 1, as he cries out, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. This has a different tone than Psalm 142. In Psalm 142, the mercy that David was crying out for was uh, it's a translation of the Hebrew word raham. And raham means to show kindness to me in my, mercy, in my misery. But the word here in, in Psalm 57 is hanan, which simply means to show favor. Just a general term of, 
of favor without the nuance of, of in a miserable situation, just desiring that the Lord would essentially continue his, his showing his goodness out of, the, out of his kindness. So David is kind of leaving the misery behind, even though, as we read through this, you probably noticed some things about his enemies, and, and he describes the enemies in pretty dramatic, graphic kinds of terms like lions with sharp teeth and that sort of thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But even in that, there's no despair in those descriptions. In fact, it's like really the contrast in spite of how, how uh, determined and how powerful and how, how uh, fierce the, his enemies may be, God is greater. And in fact, when you look at this psalm, perhaps you noticed that unlike a lot of the psalms that we've been going through lately, and even in Psalm 142, the covenant name of God is not used in this psalm. Did you catch that? In Psalm 142, it's all throughout. As David is pleading in the midst of his misery about God's faithfulness, he's coming back to God's covenant. Here, it's the more generic title for God, Elohim, which is the Almighty One. The emphasis in this psalm, it's not that David is forgetting about God's covenant faithfulness. and He mentions that faithfulness several times. But his emphasis is upon God's power to carry out those promises. And his absolute certainty and surety that in the midst of this storm, that he is going to emerge unscathed because of the power of God. Now, perhaps this change uh, of tone in this psalm, from Psalm 142, uh, was uh, perhaps it was brought about by the arrival of the prophet Gad, uh, which we read about in 1 Samuel 22, which would have reminded David that Yahweh had not deserted him. And perhaps also as more and more soldiers and their families came in and their numbers swelled, he felt less and less alone. His family came, family that in the past maybe hadn't uh, uh, really thought too highly of him. Uh, in the, even in the midst of that, they are all showing up. Perhaps all of that uh, encouraged David's heart. But I think most of all, David's heart is filled with gratitude and joy in the knowledge that God's faithfulness brings relief after the storms of life because of his perfect power to bring it about. So let's look at this, this faithfulness which David is speaking of here in this psalm. We're going to look, first of all, because roughly the first half of the psalm is addressing the things that God does. And the second half is his response, or what our response is or should be, to what God does. So let's, let's look, first of all, as is always appropriate, at God's faithfulness, at the things that God does, because his faithfulness is very sure in every action of his. So let's look at these various acts that David mentions here in the, uh, the opening verses of this psalm. First of all, uh, take a look at verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his, his well, I'm adding the word, his purpose for me. I'm going to talk about his sovereign purpose. 
Because God acts to accomplish all that he sets out to do. And he cannot be naysayed. He cannot be uh, undermined. He will accomplish all his holy will. The surety here. He is the God who is most high. The, the, the language here, verse 2, is very much emphasizing that of a, a God who is sovereign over all. There is none that he questions as to say, should I do this or should I do that? Do you think this is a wise course or do you not? He doesn't ask us. He doesn't ask the angels. He doesn't uh, uh, go consult the leaders of men. He, within himself, is sufficient to make up his own mind and to do so perfectly and then to accomplish what he sets out to do. When you think about what David might have in mind here, about God's purpose for me, perhaps David had in his, in his mind uh, the monarchy, essentially uh, going ahead and taking on the, the throne of Judah uh, and Israel, the, of the nation, when, uh, when God saw fit to bring that about. Uh, that would be a natural thing for David to have in mind, but perhaps David also was thinking in broader terms, in terms of his own physical safety, uh, that of his family. Remember, he's, he's uh, uh, divided from his wife, at this, separated from his wife at this point, uh, Michal. Um, he's on the run, um, life in danger, and yet I think David, in looking at this, yeah, there's lots of lightning, there's lots of thunder, there's heavy winds, there's heavy rains, and yet uh, in all of that, uh, the Lord has provided safety and shelter for him and, and a foothold from which to carry on the things that God has called him to do. So God acts uh, very surely and certainly in David's mind to accomplish this. Notice he doesn't say to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He says he's a God who does it. He fulfills his purpose. You know, when we're in the midst of trials and afflictions, difficulties, uh, yep, yeah, we believe in God's sovereignty. We know that God will take care of us. Yes, sooner or later, we're going to come out of this, you know, in a good condition. But we can kind of wallow in self-pity in the meantime. And just kind of hang on by our fingernails, you know, hold on for that time when, when yep, yeah, we'll see God's sovereign purposes Take, uh, take effect. As if in the midst of the trial, his sovereign purposes aren't already ongoing. He fulfills them. Even in the midst of the difficulties, even in the midst of the trials, he is at work accomplishing what he wants in our lives. It may simply be the, the uh, purpose of refining us through those times of trials and difficulties. It may be that his purposes... Uh, are, and I'm going to say this very carefully, um, I speak as a fool, that his purposes align with what we think would be good. I mean, the Lord doesn't delight in being perverse against us and trying to just do the opposite of whatever we think is good. Remember, we are you know, told that, uh, that he gives us the desires of our hearts. It's just that our desires sometimes are a mess 
And, but when we get our desires in line with who he is and what he desires, there's not a problem. And he accomplishes and works in those things ongoing with us to help refine our, our character, refine our morals, refine our thinking. And he's doing that constantly. And we can pray and rejoice in that our God sovereignly does act to accomplish his sovereign purposes, even when everything looks like a total disaster around us. Verse 3, first part, says, He will send from heaven and save me. I love this, that David's, David has a concept of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also because of his relationship with the Lord, as well as paying attention to what God had already revealed through Moses um, and some of the prophets before. David knows that this life isn't all there is. And that the Lord is not just going to only work through the means that are at hand among men. Because those means are pretty frail. Even the most powerful of, of uh, political machinery can't uh, hold a candle to the power that God has in the way that he works and ministers among his people and among his creation. And David notes that it's not just that God uses somebody else to do something. And it's not that, that, that he doesn't do that. He often does. He uses us in each other's lives, but all of that wouldn't be worth little if his heavenly power, his eternal power, that transcends this life and the limitations of this creation, if that was not at work, then all the rest of it would be, we'd just be spinning our wheels. But thanks be to God that he acts from heaven. He delivers with heavenly power. Power. He will send from heaven and save me. As much as I'm sure David was encouraged by this army that began to be built there in the caves of Adullam, David at this point understood that victory was not going to be by the strength of man, but by the arm of the Lord. Third, God acts along these same lines, to protect us from our enemies. And we have, uh, he will put to shame him who tramples on me. And then in verse 4, that description of the enemies as being lions. And I love what this says here. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And then also in verse 6, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. I see here in verse 4 a bit of a prequel to the, uh, that um, wonderful, iconic event in the book of Daniel where Daniel is cast into the den of lions. When you first read this about the, the lions and the enemies being like lions and how they're digging pits and all this other stuff, if you just read it on the surface really quick, you might think, oh, David's sliding into despair again, but he's not. Notice what he says. My enemies are like a den of lions. I lie down in the middle of them. 
This is not, I'm lying down in defeat, I'm giving up, I'm about to be munched on. He's saying, I'm at peace in the middle of this. I'm not having to do anything. I lay down. God is taking care of this for me. And it's the same with those that have set nets and pits. Oh, it sounds terrible. And yet, God's providence, they've been entrapped by their own snares. And he's at rest. He's at peace in the middle of this. No matter what your enemies set out to do to you, if they try to trash your name, if they try to take your property, if they try to seize your life, if they try to destroy your influence, uh, by whatever means they do, and I'm talking politically, I'm talking relationally, I'm talking within the church and out of the church, wherever people gather that, have, that come to be at odds with each other, we can find great discouragement uh, in the fact that it's, sometimes it seems like our enemies are all around us, they've, they've hemmed us in with a net, and we don't know how we're going to get out of this. We need to recognize, as David does, that God in His sovereign, matchless power has got this. And we don't necessarily, uh, well, we don't understand how He's going to bring all this about. I mean, we can watch it unfold and, and say, how did that just happen? Contrary to every expectation that we have that we were going to go down in a tailspin because of the power of our enemies and because of the, the network that they have and because of the, 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 the strength of their determination to uh, go contrary to what is righteous and good, God will not be undone. Elohim, the Almighty One, will protect us and does protect us from our enemies. And He acts this way, accomplishing His purposes, delivering us from heaven, putting our enemies in their spot in His good time, sustaining us in the midst of this, all out of His covenant promises that are related to uh, his character. Look at verse 3. God will send out. Notice he's, he's sent from heaven to save me. And now he will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This speaks to his promises. Steadfast love, has said, this is his covenant promises. And his faithfulness. It speaks to his character to actually stay true to those promises. You do not have a God who will abandon you in the midst of the storm. He will not abandon you when, when it gets so dark that you can't see. And in fact, that's when His presence is the most palpable, the most, the most obvious as He brings us through those times that we cannot bring ourselves through. A little hint. There aren't any times that we can bring ourselves through. It's just that we think we can on some occasions. But by His promises and by His character, God acts. And what's the result? Verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all the earth. Also in verse 11, that phrase is repeated. And then also in verse 6, at the very end there, they have fallen into it themselves. 
couple of several things. It, it all works together here. When the Lord acts to deliver His people and bring them out of their afflictions and their trials and brings them out of that time of storm and danger and fear by His incredible power, delivering us, protecting us from our enemies, all grounded within Himself, motivated by His own compassion, by His own honor, by His own glory. Well, then that glory... The result is his, that glory is shown everywhere. It's seen in His people. It's declared by His people. And the, one of the reasons it's declared is because, as there at the end of verse 6, you can tell David finds a great deal of satisfaction and joy in the fact that God has been working on his behalf. So that all the plans of his enemies come to nothing because of God's sovereign power. And David is at peace. You know, when the Lord acts on our behalf, that is, that is the joy. That is the result that we're at peace when we're resting in him. So then what do we do as we're resting in him, as we experience his power, his action? Well, verses uh, 7 through 11 also, I, we could include 5 in here as well. Uh, it, 5 and 11 really do kind of encapsulate our response. And it's called praise. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. We're to praise Him with song. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. By the way, do you notice uh, when you hear that, I hope your mind goes back to Psalm 142, those of you that were here for that. I remember how unsteadfast David was in Psalm 142. Up and down, back and forth. Here, he's steadfast. He's rock solid. He's not wavering anymore. He knows that God has kept him and will keep him. And so, he's praising with song. I will sing and make melody. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a delight. It's the, the, the fuller we get here to hear the swelling of the music and the joy of singing together is a great blessing. I hope it encourages you. By the way, a little plug for Presbytery. Um, I hope all of you can make it for Presbytery. We'll pack this place out. If you do, that would be so awesome. Because when you get all of you and about 40, uh, 40 guys and their families um, in here singing, singing hymns, we'll peel... The, will peel the siding off the building. It's awesome. It's the best part about Synod and Presbytery is the singing. Maybe it's just because I like music. But What's that? Oh, the messages. Well, yeah. Yeah, those two. But then we get to respond to them with our hearts and, and encourage each other as we sing together. Because God is faithful. He's worthy of praise. And so we lift up our voices in song. And we can praise Him, uh, not just, okay, I'm going to go through the motions and singing these songs, but I'm going to praise Him with eagerness. Look at verse 8. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit around and wait for uh, an opportune time. I don't care if everybody's sleeping in the house. It's time to sing. It's time to praise God. To have that kind of eagerness to praise is characteristic of those who have experienced God's deliverance in power. And we praise as well 
with gratitude. Look at that. I will give thanks to you. Verse 9. O Lord, among the peoples, I will sing praises to you among the nations. And we'll talk about uh, uh, that in just a moment. But that first aspect of I will give thanks to you as the content of our praise. Not just saying, and it's... We see it here. We see it other places in the Psalms. It's great to say, Lord, you're glorious. Lord, you're powerful. Lord, you're wonderful. Lord, you're great. But we, the fact of the matter is, is that the devils also know that the Lord is great, powerful, and all of the other things. And they know it well. But they're not grateful. They're not humble before him. They're not submitted to him. They can acknowledge who He is without relationship. This is gratitude. Bob Jones Sr. used to say that when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. And it's a good thought. Because if we're not grateful for who God is, that means we are entitled. We think we have it coming. Well, what we, when what we actually have coming is His judgment. Let us be grateful for our God who acts on our behalf and praise Him accordingly. Yes, telling Him and everyone else about how marvelous and glorious He is, but with hearts that are overwhelmed with gratitude for this God who, while we were yet sinners, sent a Savior to die for us, our Lord Jesus, and deliver us from all His and our enemies. And that brings us to a companion to gratitude, verse 9, about singing praises. This is, this whole little section here just oozes joy. Gratitude, yes, but no grudging gratitude. Yeah, okay, thanks, Lord. Okay, I know I didn't deserve this. Thank you anyway. But with joy. At God's deliverance that is wonderful and absolute and perfect because He is perfect. Let us be filled with joy as we praise Him. And then also in verse 9, kind of in all all of this together, to praise with... I kind of wrestled with different words to use here, but I ended up with this in my notes. To praise with intent. To praise with intent. We're not simply praising to make ourselves feel good. But we have an intention of magnifying Him. That's what glorifying means. Magnifying Him in the eyes of others. And that's our intent when we praise. When you sing here uh, hymns of praise, don't just sing them because you like the sound of it, because it has a a personally meaningful... uh, connotation for you uh, whatever but take on that attitude that the Apostle Paul commands of us that we exhort one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs making melody in your hearts unto the Lord our intent is to exalt the Lord in the eyes of others to proclaim His glory to the nations among the peoples. So let me 
wrap this up by going back to verse 1. It's an interesting phrase there, and it's, it's why I uh, pulled out uh, the, uh, the title for this message, Out of the Storm Cellar, which you may have wondered, what was all that about? There's a phrase there in verse 1 that's, that caught my eye and my imagination. Till the storms of destruction pass by. Now, after the storm in Tennessee had passed, uh, my hosts and I, we emerged from the house <laughs> to survey whatever damage had been done. Um, one, at uh, one point, uh, um, uh, my host and I, he, he and I took a drive down the roads looking for downed power lines and trees and taking some pictures and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and as we drove around, uh, we breathed a collective sighs of relief. We rejoiced that we had made it to the shelter. And by the way, where it says, in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, that's the idea of shelter. We saw that same word in Psalm 142. It's not just a, <clears throat> a place to get out of harm's way, but it's, it's a shelter, a place where, yeah, I'm out of harm's way, but in there I find everything that I need. Same word. We had made it to our shelter. We had been witnesses to the awesome power of God all around us. And we had been preserved to carry on the next day in the work that the Lord had called us to do. The storms of destruction that swirl around us from time to time in our lives are fearsome. They can discourage us greatly. We wonder if there's ever going to be an end of it. And if we're going to avoid, I remember one particular crash. Um, this is one reason why we went, went out and went driving the roads is because, you know, thunder... When the thunder and the lightning hit at the same time, you know it's close. And it felt like it was right on top of us. We, were, we thought it actually had hit the house in front of us. It hadn't. It was a huge tree just a little bit down the road, but it sounded like it was next door. You know, we wondered, how did, how did we dodge that? Are we going to dodge that? There's lightning everywhere. And yet, the Lord preserved us. We were able to emerge from the storm cellar. We were able to come out and breathe a sigh of relief and smell the fresh air that had been oxidized by the lightning and cleansed by the rain. And, and that sense of breathing that in and knowing that life was going to continue and that, that we were safe because the Lord had kept us. That's the feel I get from Psalm 57. And that's the feel that I want you to experience and know when you are going through those storms and difficulties of life. To trust this God who delivers you absolutely, perfectly, sovereignly to accomplish all that He desires in your life. And know that as you've experienced His power, you've seen it at work all around you, now you can march forward in confidence because truly His faithfulness brings that relief to you after the storm. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this precious psalm. Thank you that you have 
done amazing things in our lives over and over and over again. We've seen your hand at work. Sometimes we've even recognized it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize it more and to be filled with praise more. Praise that's motivated by gratitude and fueled by joy to glorify you in the midst of your creation. Help us to be at peace as we sometimes hide in the caves that you provide for us. As we regroup to uh, go and serve you again, let us do so with, with eagerness and confidence in your matchless power and faithfulness.